Nick, welcome. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. Oh, it's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. So Nick, we're, we're going to talk about a bunch of different topics today. You know, where customer success goes in the future, uh, building and scaling a category creator. And then we'll round out with how to think about fundraising in this market. I, I want to start though with the concept of what you guys do at GameSite, right? Which is solving for customer success. It's almost biblical now for SaaS companies. Uh, it certainly wasn't possible 10 years ago, you know, when you started as CEO of GameSite. Let's, let's maybe just take a step back, set the stage, and, and tell us a little bit more about this arc, you know, of customer success from, from then to now. I love it. I like that it's biblical. That's cool. I'm going to take that one home, take that one to the bank. Um, so we, we have actually done, it's funny, we have done the 10 laws of customer success as maybe it should be called the 10 commandments of customer success. So we, um, so, you know, I, I, again, I think some people listening to this, y'all, y'all have seen the movie, but just to give you the, the full picture of like where it came from, right? So what customer success is really just an outgrowth, a very natural kind of outgrowth of this transition in business models that's happened in, in, in the economy and this transition and generally the, the power that customers have in, in relationship with vendors. So you kind of go through the quick version of the history. We, we all started, a technology business started with these models that were basically about selling products, right? You sell a software product, you sell a hardware product, a customer buys it, they pay money up front to get it. They may pay you some ongoing support or maintenance fees, but they pay you a lot of money up front. And then the customer's decision then was how they used it and whether they set it up or whether they never set it up. And you know, therefore you had a lot of what people called shelfware out there, right? But companies like Oracle and Siebel, which got bought by Oracle and people like the SAP uh, back in that era, they made a lot of money selling software. And by the way, they did, they did exactly what we all would have done. They, their incentive was to sell it and then support the customer if they needed it. But their incentive wasn't about making sure they're using it and getting value because a customer's job was to figure that out, right? Customer success in the old world was up to the customer, whether you were successful or not, right? It was up to them to figure out. And the analogy I like to say for somebody who doesn't know anything about software is, you know, think of the kind of transition from these, uh, you know, uh, the going to the gym where you sign up for a monthly gym membership, right? And it's, uh, you know, the gym membership, you sign up, you pay every month and whether you use it or not, it's up to you, right? And think of like a personal trainer that's actually like helping you get, you know, to your fitness goals and motivating you and reminding you that you need to come in and you haven't worked out in a while and asking you about your diet, right? And so this transition in business models forced companies as we went to SaaS and cloud force companies to say, I got to be more like a personal trainer. I got to like, I can't just sell them a gym membership. I got to actually make sure they're using this stuff because they're not going to stay with me. Salesforce famously is the first company that had to do customer success because the, the, the day they started selling those one-year subscriptions meant that 365 days from then, they were going to either get customers to renew it or not. If, and if they weren't using it, they weren't going to renew. And Salesforce, you know, publicly has talked about they had a lot of churn in the early days and they created this customer success concept. Mark Benioff, you know, uh, allegedly came up with a title, right, in some offsite years ago. And so what happened was the early SaaS companies kind of had to figure this out on their own, and they just did it by necessity. And then over time, customer success became kind of a standard in the SaaS world. And, you know, we saw this again, because we launched the company in 2013. 2013, yep. there are about 500 CSMs in the world. Today, yep. there's several hundred thousand just on LinkedIn. And so it's turned into this big profession, but it's not just a profession. It's the way you said it. It's actually just like fundamentally the way you grow a SaaS company is making sure your customers are getting value. So yeah, it's, it's become pretty foundational, but it wasn't always that way. And so when you guys started the company, right, 500 CSMs, let's say out there, hundreds of thousands now, 
how did you guys think about that when you were building the business, right? Did you think about it as you were creating a category? Did you think about it as you were resegmenting kind of an existing market? How, like walk me through a little bit more of kind of that early days thinking, right? When you're, when you were starting the business. Totally. Yeah. And you know, you think that like everything in high, everything up front would have been this very well thought out strategy. And the truth is, I think we were like, honestly, just like, we were, we really didn't think through it well early on because we were like, wait, okay, we're going to build software for customer success people. And the TAM is 500 people. Yeah. What are we going to do? Sell each, each customer will get a couple thousand dollars per person per year. So is that a million dollar business, right? So like we didn't, luckily we never did that math or we would have just been scared away. Um, I think what, what really happened was all of us that were involved early in the company had done SaaS businesses before. So, and so I'd run a SaaS business before this and I, we didn't have, we didn't call it customer success, but we'd had those problems of like churn and retention. And so we all were like there, you've got to do this when you're a SaaS company. And eventually there'll be a lot of SaaS companies. And, and, and one of our early investors said, Hey, every SaaS business needs Salesforce for sales, Marketo for marketing and, you know, Gainsight for customer success. And so that was the logic early on, right? It was just that. And frankly, I didn't actually know how many CSMs there were on LinkedIn at that point. So I actually glad I didn't know because I think we would have just gotten scared away and not done it. Um, so what we did was we started, you know, trying to sell and, and honestly realizing, gosh, there's a lot of companies that don't have CSM teams or they don't really know what CS should be or who it should report to or what their job is or how you measure them. We've, and also by the way, these CS leaders we're trying to figure it out on their own. And so what we did totally out of necessity was created the category, but not because we were like trying to do some create a category and it's some strategic fun thing. It was because like we needed a market. <laughs> we built software for a market that didn't exist. And so what we did, which you can go into detail on, is really, really focused on the, the profession. So there yeah. are customer success leaders, there are CSMs. How do you get more people into the profession? How do you make the profession a great profession people are excited about. How do you teach them how to do their job or, or at least let them learn from each other? How do you um, figure out compensation and org structures? And none of this stuff was like, we weren't like experts ourselves, but we kind of curated the knowledge from the community, brought people together, you know, along the way, wrote three books on customer success, run a huge conference, like created an online program to teach people CSMs, created internships for people to get into customer success everything possible to kind of bring this profession together. Um, but honestly, totally out of necessity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unpack, unpack that a little bit more, right? Because I think it's, so if you kind of put the investor hat on, let's, and let's rewind 10 years ago, right. And say somebody is kind of evaluating game inside the business, you know, the kind of famous like three arcs for any investor in the, in the tech business or product team and market, right. so obviously a lot more complexity there, but let's say product team and market, right. You guys might have had a great product. You might've been a great team, but the big question mark is the market, right? So you had the fortune or misfortune at that time of kind of plunging in, right? Yeah. And saying, okay, well, we're going to build this thing. It's kind of academic or it doesn't really matter what the size of the market is, right? We're not thinking about that. But then when you're building it, and by definition, you're building a category creator, it's a different playbook or a different way to build a business, oh. right? Than resegmenting an existing market. So one of the things you just said resonates a lot, which is, hey, we had to kind of think of, you know, building basically this community and getting the getting this profession to really spearhead because then these are the people we're going to sell the the product or the software into. What are what are other elements or what are considerations like that as well um, that you guys had to do kind of to get this actually off the ground? So community and kind of spearheading the profession that makes sense. What are what are other examples of considerations you guys had to work? Yeah, through? totally. So first of all, I think you you were alluding to one which is like if you just think about the fundraising point of view, yeah. um, you know. 
yeah, team technology and, and, uh, and market. Right. Um, and honestly, I would say we had a pretty good team. Um, our technology was like very basic because when you don't have a market, it's hard to build the product. Cause you, it's a bit of a catch 22, which I'll come back to that in a second. Cause there's a lot of product stuff to think through there. Um, so fundraising was one thing. How do you get people that believe in the fundamental underlying dynamics and the dynamics for us were very simple, which is every company is going to be a software company over time. Um, and every software company is going to have this sort of some kind of SaaS cloud business model. And they're going to have to not just sell customers, but make sure they're successful. That was it. That, that was the whole thesis. Now, early days of Gainsight, there weren't that many software companies relative like to our ambitions. And now I'm sure you feel the same way. Every day I see some like billion dollar valuation company I've never heard of. And early days of Gainsight, any, you could say any funding announcement, I would have already known the company. I would have met them. I would have been trying to pitch them on Gainsight. Like, everything. And now it's like, well, I've never heard of that company. And so one of our beliefs in turning true is software is eating the world, right? Like Mark Andreessen's you know, uh, post from our Wall Street Journal article years ago. So one thing was fun fundraising and basically fundraising on belief, right? Okay. And you had to find investors and like what causes belief? Well, people, typically people that have seen the adjacent problems. So a lot of our early investors were early SaaS investors and they just seen the fundamental problems that their, their companies had had and said, okay, well, they probably will need something to solve this. So that was one, one, one thing. Second thing we talked a little bit about, which is community. There's a lot of art in that, which I can come back to on, um, you know, how do you uh, create a community? How do you make it about them? Not just be like a, not just a vendor thing, but like truly a kind of something that the community cares about. How do you use it to elevate all of the people in the profession? So they become kind of heroes and they kind of almost look to you as like, the person that's making their profession important. How do you run great events? Events are a big part of that, right? So there's a lot that was about community content, you know, et cetera. There's a third thing, which is product, right? So you're, you're, you know, you were kind to say we had a great product early on. We didn't, no, we did. Like we, cause we didn't have, we didn't know what it should have been. Yep. Right. And that's the challenge. It was like a new job. What does a CSM do? What should, what should the product do? And so we, we had to number one, and we invest a lot in R and D to be able to solve all the problems. Um, but then number two, really, really pick good early customers, right? You've seen this in a lot of your investments, like early customers are your destiny. So we were very fortunate that Box was one of our first customers and they still are today. And they kind of like were, you know, one of those iconic SaaS companies at the time that helped us figure out what should customer success be, what should Gainsight be. And, and there were many other early customers like that. So kind of co-development with customers and being thoughtful about who those early customers are, that was super important. We really didn't go after the young, young startups because yep. we wanted to build something that could scale. Um, the, uh, planning and kind of like your go-to-market strategy is another like thing we could click into because yep. in a new market, it's not like you can be like, well, here's the TAM and you know, here's we just need this many salespeople. If we hire more salespeople, we can yep. sell to more customers because yep. if the market's not there, your salespeople are just going to be sitting idle. And we went through phases of like, we hired too many salespeople and we never had to do layoffs, but like, you know, sales performance suffered and you, know, you can only do so much and morale dropped a little bit because of that, right? So there's an element of like, how do you plan a business in a new category? And I think that's the last one, which to me is the most important is, you know, new categories are hard. Like you're pushing a rock up a hill. And yeah. so there's some element of like culture and values that get you through it and like belief. So there's some of that intangible stuff about running a company. And again, we can talk more about that in detail, but there's several things I think you need to be prepared for. And whenever, like I, I've gotten hundreds and hundreds of entrepreneurs who, you know, set up calls to say, hey, can you tell me more about creating a category? And my first thing is always, are you sure you want to, yeah. um, right? Like, because it's not like, like if you have the next gen technology in an existing space, you don't need to create a category. 
the demand is already there. You, you need to go tell people how your stuff is better and faster and cheaper and whatever, right? Um, but it's true that nowadays more than ever, there are a lot of new categories that have been created because what's happened is um, new categories are getting created as software meets the real world and is creating these new things that people never knew they needed to buy. And yep. if you wrapped up all this new category creation into one concept, you're trying to change the way people think, yep. right? That's what you're trying to do, change the way people think. And whether that's through the community, whether that's the way they think about the product or the profession, it's changed the way people think. And so one of the, the kind of core approaches that we've taken throughout everything in Gainsight is much more of a B2C approach. Hmm. Like the way we market, the way we do things, it's all about people's emotions and their feelings. And it's not as much just purely, okay, this is, this is faster, this is smarter, this is better. It's more about like their aspirations, their goals. And, and again, we can click on that as well. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot to unpack there. And I want to go on a couple of those different threads. The, right. the, the latest one that you just said, or the last thing that you just said was interesting, right? Which is changing people's behavior. So I think one of the biggest challenges I often see in companies, you know, I've invested in or observed that are creating a new category. Um, and I think this is a little bit counterintuitive. So I'm, I'm interested to hear if your experience resonated with this is it's often actually easier to go from zero to one than one to N. And so Absolutely. what I mean by that, right? Exactly. And so, and so what I mean by that for folks that are listening is basically, you know, all the things kind of Nick, you've been talking about, you know, picking your early customers the right way, cultivating community, et cetera. You have the right people, right, that are going to buy the product early on and really, really engage with you. And then there's, you know, this kind of famous concept of crossing the chasm. But I think it's it's kind of of that, of that, um, of that dynamic, which is you get through the early adopter curves actually pretty well, right? Like your customers really like you, they engage with you, you can upsell them, so on and so forth. And then you kind of start to hit a wall. And, and I want you to talk about that a little bit more because if I recollect correctly, you guys experienced something like that at GameSide, right? Like you kind of went out very quickly and then kind of hit a wall. And we'll, we'll unpack a little bit about kind of managing through that because I think that's particularly interesting. But maybe give us some experience first just on that concept of kind of, you know, zero to one, one to N, you know, kind of how you how you guys thought about that. Yeah, it's funny you were saying that because you mentioned crossing the chasm and that's a famous book by Jeffrey Moore, if you folks that don't know. And um, Jeffrey Moore actually, um, who's like a luminary in business, he spoke at our first Pulse conference, which is the customer success event we do in 2013. And then he became an advisor to us and consultant and all that. And it, it couldn't be more accurate for what we went through. And when you hear the term crossing the chasm, uh, if you don't make it across that chasm, <laughs> it's a long climb back up, right? Or, or you hit the wall. And so I wrote a blog post, which is what you're referring to, um, you know, last year sometime. And this is after we'd, you know, had some success and the company's done well and all that. But just to like normalize that it wasn't all downhill, it wasn't all easy. And what specifically happened, if I gave you numbers, was um, we we you know launched a company in 2013, yep. and um, you know customer success, it's exciting, it's the next thing in SaaS, you know, good investors, you know, battery, bank capital ventures, Bessemer, Salesforce, Lightspeed, all these great, awesome people. Yep. And lots of hype and, you know, created, you know, ran these conferences. And so the company went from like zero to 1 million of AR and then one to five and five to 16. And so honestly, even today, that's pretty good growth, right? And so it was like, wow, this is amazing. And then we went from like 16 to 30, you know, uh, but I remember that 16 and 30 year was a little harder than we 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 thought it'd be. And then like 30 went to, I, I'm, I'm off the top of my head, so I might be wrong a little bit, but sure. 30 went to like 48 of AR and 48 went to like 60. And that's yeah. fine, but your, your growth rate's slowing a lot, right? And yeah. so, and we, you know, those years we were missing our bookings plans and all that kind of stuff. 
And, it, yeah. and, and by the way, it wasn't just sales. Like everything was harder. Like it was harder to get adoption in these new customers and retention and everything was just felt like harder. And it, and if you re read Crossing the Chasm, which I think you've read, you know, what's happening is you're trying to go from that, those early adopters to that like early, early majority, early mainstream. And it is really, really challenging because what happens is those early people are buying based on vision of wanting to do something differently, right? They really, they want to change. Right. They are the kind of people that try new things out. They try new fashions out or new technologies. They want to change. They're the, by the way, I think there's companies that tend to be early adopters in the B2B world and there's other ones that don't. And so anyways, all these like people are excited and we've raised all this money and all these expectations. And yeah, we start missing our sales numbers and yeah, nothing ever catastrophic happened, but it was, it was a slog. It was our, and then, and then what happened was um, our, our market matured, SaaS grew a lot. Yeah. Our product matured. We maintained our leadership the whole way. And then, yeah, then our business re-accelerated and the last few years have been awesome. But yeah, we had that period, which basically was, you know, 2017, 18, or 2016 to 18, which is like a total slog. And I can click into any of that in more detail. Yeah. I mean, well, what goes through your head? So that's an interesting phase to hit a wall, right? Because it's like, you're, you know, you're mentioning, yes, you had astounding growth, kind of 5X, 3X, like you're on the path, right? That's, that's kind of the famous SaaS path, right. um, get to hundred million in ARR, you're kind of hitting those pieces. Um, you're still growing the business, right? I mean, 30 to 48 to 60, yes, the growth rate is going down, but you know, 60 million in ARR is nothing to sneeze at, right? And so you're kind of in this, I'm, I'm curious actually how you think through that as a CEO, because sub 10 million, if you're, if you're slowing down, it's, you know, Products either not good, market's actually not as big as you thought it was. Maybe the team's not the right team, et cetera. Like you guys have hit kind of 50, 60 million in ARR. You're, you're a very real business. Um, what goes through your mind as CEO? Do you start thinking, you know, we need to double down on the core product. We need to level up the team. Maybe this is the size of the market. We need to start thinking about acquisition. I mean, what goes through your mind in that zone? I think that's, that's kind of one set of questions. And then the other piece is, regardless of what's going on in your mind, how are you managing the team to yeah. do that, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, maybe click into this would be interesting. Yeah, so great, I love it. And and so in hindsight, the benefit of hindsight now kind of have a little bit of better understanding of what happened. What happened in our market was that we were too early yeah. and the market was going to eventually be there, but it wasn't there yet. That's like what now with the benefit of a few years knowledge, we, we know that that's what happened or probably what happened, right? And so we basically were like, our, our, what that, if, if you're an entrepreneur, like to me, like key thing is like, is your land velocity growing or not? Right. Our land velocity basically became like the number of lands we were doing or the dollars of land, land, new customers we were doing was basically kind of flat year over year. So we we're still growing, but like the number of new customers bringing on was kind of flattening out. And it was just, we had hit that like efficient frontier of where the market was. And then it reaccelerated in the last couple of years. And so what <laughs> I tried everything. Um, and I actually, I think there's two, two things. If I could have done it over again, there's two ways I would have done it differently. Okay. So, but, but let me tell you first what I tried. So first we tried like your, your classic playbook of like, maybe it's the sales team. Maybe it's the sales leader. Maybe it's the marketing person. Maybe it's, we're not good enough at demand gen. Maybe it's the positioning. Maybe it's the packaging. Maybe we need to like have different ways to position to different industries, blah, blah, blah. We tried every single one of those things. All and of the veneer, right? All the stuff kind of on the outside. All that go-to-market optimization stuff that you read about. But if the market's not ready, it's all of it. 
Yeah. So I wasted tons of time and money on that, all that stuff. And you can attack lots of gangsters from that era. And they would all say, oh my God, Nick tried so many different things. Um, now, what I wish I'd done, and I, I did a little bit, and I'm glad we did, but I wish we had done more, is I think there's two things you can do in that situation, right? So one is you can be patient. And you'd be like, look, batten down the hatches, yep. you know, yep. be efficient, don't burn a lot of money. And yep. three years from now, the market's going to be here, right? Yep. Um, and and that, that would have been great. Um, and then the other approach is actually, no, we want to have multiple engines of growth so yeah. that like things do eventually slow down no matter who you are, right? Whether you're Stripe or anyone else, eventually things slow down. And yeah. so yeah. companies that get really big have multiple engines of growth. And so what we probably wish we had done earlier is started like the next act, the next business, the next market, but not just like trying to do the existing market better, but like literally getting another adjacent market. And so we did that. One of the better things we did during that era was we bought a company called Aptrinsic that basically is in the technology market for building uh, technology sell to the product team inside a SaaS company to help basically drive product-led growth by like helping you understand how people are using your product and then in the product, guiding them to do the right next best action to adopt the product or convert to a free, you know, free trial to pay it, et cetera, et cetera. And that business has done quite well for us. Um, I wish I'd done that one earlier and I'd done probably a couple more like that or just been patient, right? Because patient meant, would have meant we wouldn't have been diluted as much or you know, we have more growth, those are two. Now, the thing I'm glad I did do, there's one, one thing I, there's like literally one good thing for sure I did against site. There's only one, which is not give up. Yeah. So at the end of the day, and this will tie to culture a little bit, at the end of the day, the core thing is, do I still believe that in the future, there will be more digital businesses, the digital businesses, customers, you have to put more, more focus on customers because they have more power, do I dis do I disagree with any of those assumptions? No, because they're like obvious. They're obviously true. And then what I told myself over and over again in terms of my maintenance is, it, what would it feel like if we like sold the company at this point or whatever, and um, I did something else, and then I saw like some other vendor like now thriving because they waited for that market to come around. That would feel like crappy, right? It's kind of like there were some cloud-based CRM companies that weren't Salesforce, right? Like there are, there were, you know, you go through your history and, you know, there were some other ones out there. Right. And like, there are companies that like came up with categories and didn't end up becoming the leader of the category. And yeah. it's like the worst feeling in the world. And yeah. so for me, I was like, I want to be around when the day comes. And, yeah. uh, and so, so that's kind of what we did Um, on the, I don't know if you want to click on that. I can talk about culture, um, but. It, yeah, no, you can, you can talk about culture. I think there's one thing that's, that's interesting there. I just want to highlight, right. So it doesn't get lost in kind of what you were just saying, which is this concept of kind of asking fundamental questions that applied in your your context, right? Will kind of customers have more power in the future? Uh, you know, will companies need more or less of a focus on customer success? I I love that because I think that distillation can actually be applied to any business. That's right. right. So if you what? zoom out, right, for anybody listening, it, it's basically Nick, what you're saying or what I'm hearing you're saying is, you know, who in the interaction that my business operates in will have more leverage. Another way to think about that is kind of where does value in the value chain actually lie? Yep. And then the second thing is, does my core customer actually need what I'm solving for more or less going forward? That's right. right. And if you if you kind of ask yourself, you know, where is the value chain actually happening and where are we positioned on that? And is the core customer that I'm working with going to need kind of more or less of this? Then, then you actually have the ammo to have the discussion on timing or patience or this or that, right? Um, but I like those two questions a lot because I think, you know, as somebody that's not running a customer success SaaS business, it completely applies, you know, in my business, it applies in any business, quite candidly. That's so well said. And I think it is, it's, you know, some people call those inevitable truths. It's like, what are the inevitable truths you believe? Do you still believe them or not? Maybe you don't believe them. Maybe things have changed and that's fine. 
or do you still believe them? And then one of the, the things I'll tell you, and we can click into more later is, you know, eventually like things flip the other way, particularly in SaaS. There's an interesting thing in SaaS, which I think there's a number of businesses that decelerated and then reaccelerated. And there's yeah. kind of this critical mass flywheel thing that happens where you start getting like in our world, it's kind of interesting. It's like vast majority of CS leaders out there have actually like used Gainsight before and yeah. they put it on their LinkedIn profile. And it's like, it sort of builds on itself then. It's like, oh yeah, so obviously we're going to use Gainsight and I'm a new company and I'm going to go bring Gainsight in there. And, you know, and so you end up building this critical mass, but it, uh, the, 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 when people use the analogy of a flywheel, part of what they're talking about is when you push on a flywheel initially, it doesn't feel like it moves at all. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, eventually it starts moving and then it builds momentum. Yeah. And um, that period where it doesn't feel like it's moving sucks. Yeah. Right. And actually, I think you brought up a very astute point, which is in these crossing the chasm initially it feels like it's moving and then it actually like feels like it's slowed down. Yeah. And then actually, then it really accelerates. And that's, that's experience. Now let's go to culture. So um, that's some for me personally. And I think every, every CEO has a different relationship to culture. Like for some CEOs, culture is kind of a means to an end, like, Oh, I'm going to have a good culture so I can build a big business and make a lot of money or whatever. For me, the culture was actually the end. Like I actually like the, the thing that motivates me about business is like being able to create a, a construct for human beings to, yeah. to be actually be able to like, you know, find joy and satisfaction in their lives, the human beings inside the company, as well as like customers and the community and all that. And so from the beginning of Gainsight, we've had this, our, our purpose statement, kind of our mission statement is never been about Gainsight's technology. It's, it's actually to be living proof you can win in business while being human first. And human first is the kind of rallying cry of the company, which is like, Let's not forget that our customers are human beings first, our employees are human beings first. And we have lots of different ways we live that. Like, for example, like being really great when people leave the company, treating them super well on the way out or treating customers that churn super well and, and, and helping people find jobs like in our customer base. So there's a lot of real traditions. And then there's five values underneath our kind of principle uh, values like childlike joy, which means bring the kid new to work every day. Shoshin, which is the Japanese word for beginner's mind. So anyways, we have this culture that's been strong from day one. Like it's yep. I, like the most common thing when new people join Gainsight and ask them what's special about Gainsight. And they're always like, well, you talked about the values on your website and interviewing, but I didn't think that they were going to be real and they're actually real, right? So what, what, why do I tell you that in this story category creation? I do think that because you have to be patient and there might be a period where you, you're crossing the chasm, it's the only thing that keeps you going. Yeah. It's the only thing. Because like otherwise, especially in a hot economy, there's so many other alternatives. And I'm blown away, like Gainsight over the years, like anyone, you have turnover, people come and go. I'm blown away by the number of people that like are eight years into Gainsight. And like, they're super talented. Gainsight has a pretty good brand. So if you want, you, you could go a lot of places from here. Yeah. But there's people that stick it out. And it's really that values and culture that causes people to stick through it. So to me, like values and culture are easy when you're winning. And in fact, your culture will feel great when you're winning. But yeah. the litmus test is actually when things aren't going great. And yeah. does it keep people together, keep them on the, on the, on the bus or on the boat or whatever? Totally. Yeah. I, there's this quote and I, I'm going to botch it, but it's something to the tune of, you know, culture is, is kind of maintained in continuity, but it's really built in adversity. Yes, right? exactly. and, so, and so it's, it's oftentimes, I think from a pragmatic basis flipped, right. And, and, uh, you know, folks think it's kind of culture built in moments of kind of continuity or, or kind of excellence. And it's really, you know, it's not, it's the inverse, right? It's really, it's, you You know, getting through kind of the tough slogs or or the more difficult pieces. That's typically when you have cohesion or you break, it's pretty binary, right? That's right. And, you know, we all saw that. I think every every entrepreneur saw that in the early pandemic, you know, 
that, no. that either made your culture way stronger, which it did for us big time, or or it unfortunately broke for some folks, right? Not too many, but okay. for some. So yeah, totally. Uh, so there's there's a so when you're kind of in that grind, right? There's a culture aspect of this, which is basically how do you keep people motivated, how do you care for them, so on and so forth. Um, I think then there's actually like a core. Um, there's a core business exercise that's going on as well, right? So you talked about it that, you know, companies that have succeeded in SaaS have multiple different growth engines. You guys had kind of one primary growth engine. What were, what was the thought process or what became those different growth engines kind of coming out of those slog periods? Was it new, you know, new go to market, not necessarily the strategy like we talked about before, but actually new markets, you know, expansion of the product. What, what was it that actually developed those multiple growth levers? Yeah, that's interesting. And you know, we're kind of in the in that in that process. We've made some progress now, but we're still, you know, still, you know, kind of in it. So I'll I'll tell you what we've done and also what we've thought about doing. So, you know, I think like the mistake, as I was alluding to, was thinking that there was necessarily just a better execution lever in our core business. Um, Now, probably we could execute a little better, but um, in the core business, we were definitely just market timing limited, right? And the mistake was probably over optimizing there Um, because at some point you can only you can only replace your sales leader so much. <laughs> like then you're like, it's not their problem, right? Um, and so, th- so then what we said was, okay, well, one one area is what are the adjacencies that are solving kind of the bigger problem that people are buying us for, but the adjacent things you do. So if you're a SaaS business and you're trying to, for example, improve your net retention rate, you know, keep and grow customers, what are the other things you do? Well, one of the things you do is you understand how people are using your product and drive better experience in the product. And so we saw a few vendors in that space. There's a company called like Pendo and WalkMe and there are other great yeah, companies yeah. as well. And, um, but then we found this company called Aptrinsic and it was like just technology, but awesome founders and like amazing technology. And we're like, oh, we could sell this to our base. And, and so we bought this company and went through all the fits and starts of like your first acquisition of like, how do you run it? And you run it separate or not made lots of mistakes there, but yeah. like created a whole new market for us, like whole new TAM, whole new business, all fits into the same strategy. And for our, our customers, it makes sense together. But that expanded our, our market TAM growth potential, accelerator growth, all that. So that was like one thing we did. A second one was um, geography. Geography is a no-brainer. Like that's kind of like if you don't have people in certain markets, it's harder to reach and sell to people. So setting up a team in England, and that's like 10% of our business now, Western Europe. And we're now talking about launching a joint venture in Japan to, yep. to create inside Japan and, and Central Europe and probably eventually Australia, India, South America. And one thing I've been blown away by that is, is that, SaaS um, markets now are much more global from day one. In the yeah. old world of software, people be like, well, you got to figure out North America for like 10 years. Then you go to London and maybe eventually you go to some of these other places. But now the marginal cost to go to other areas is much lower and yeah. the, the, the local markets are bigger. And yeah. so that geographic expansion definitely became big. Um, we, we thought the other, the other area that some people look at is kind of segment and channel expansion. Like I'm going to go into a different segment or channel, but it turned out for us, the market was just kind of more limited everywhere. So we were, that wouldn't have that we tried some stuff there, but it didn't take us anywhere at that point. Um, now today where Gainsight is today, we're like, okay, well, we could probably sell more to like the smaller companies. So we have a whole Gainsight, like SMB kind of addition thing coming um, called Gainsight Essential. So that's like an expansion play. I mentioned the Japan thing. We just bought another company uh, a week and a half ago that's in software for building customer communities. If you want to connect your customers together so they can kind of drive, you know, learn from each other and drive success together. And so that was a natural adjacency as well. So now we have this kind of like vision of all these adjacencies around what we do. Some of them might be organic, some might be inorganic. 
But it's all now with a much more clear eyed view that at the end of the day, you know, the mar- market isn't your isn't the only thing, but market's definitely the most important thing, right? Like 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 culture and execution are critical, but you're all always within the context of your market. So you got to be very clear eyed about your market. Yeah, it's it's like if you put a good entrepreneur and a bad market in a lion cage, who's going to win, right? It's That's exactly right. Warren Buffett has a quote about that exactly, and it's one hundred percent right. It's the market every time. You said something that was pretty subtle and nuanced, but I, I want to pull it out and maybe you you can unpack it a little bit more for us, which is. So the framing of this challenge is kind of really important, right? So in Gainsight's case, you could have said, what else do we build for our customer success team? I, th- I think that's one way to think about the problem. A more holistic way to think about it is, you know, what does a business need support with to improve net revenue retention? So ultimately at the end of the day, when you think about why does a company have customer success, et cetera, it's not just to put another function in the org chart. That's it's right. It's all for kind of one thing, right? And so. I think that I'd like you to actually unpack that because I think your framing of where do you focus, it sounds very subtle. It sounds like, hey, maybe this is just semantics. I, I don't actually think it is. I think it's 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 positioning your business to think about the problem from the sense of what are you put on the earth to solve as opposed to how do we add more bells and whistles to the thing that we're giving our customers, right? You nailed it, yeah. And you know, I think that what happens is many companies start as a functional solution. So yeah. they're solving a problem for a department or role or type of person in a company, right? And that's great because you kind of have to start somewhere and you need to, it's, 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 it's terrible to like, when, when somebody says, an investor says, who's your target buyer? And you're like, everyone, I, anytime I'm an entrepreneur, <laughs> who's your target buyer? Like everyone, every, or, or even no one, the, worst answer, the worst answer is then everyone is actually the CEO. I'm like, oh my God, good luck. Good luck. Um, but basically starting out with the functional role and particularly an underserved functional role, like customer success, that was no brainer. It was great. But one of the things you run into is, you know, there's basically an envelope of how much value and money a functional role can spend and attribute to themselves, right? So one of the things vendors struggle with a lot is at some point you you keep innovating, but you're not actually able to charge more, right? So it's okay, what's the ROI of your innovation in that area? You know, something you have to really watch out for. And so then you kind of up level to say, okay, well, this function exists to solve a business problem. Yeah, at a customer, yeah. right? And the business problem, interestingly enough, like the, the, the first version of the business problem we thought about was, okay, customer success is a company-wide problem. But yeah, that, yeah. the thing that was, that was, it was good, but it was a little bit insufficient because there wasn't a number tied to it, right. right? And so then we were like, okay, well, like where, where we position today is net retention is the, you know, the business problem. And that includes expansion and retention. And that's great because that involves the product team, might involve the community, involves sales, marketing, expands our remit. And actually over time, it's kind of like, okay, the bigger business problem, net retention is just part of your growth strategy. So you can kind of ladder up and say, okay, just use some folks listening, know five whys. Five whys is just, you know, somebody says something, say, why is that true? And then why is that true? So, okay, great. Um, Gainsight's building software for customer success teams. Well, why are customer success teams important? Well, the customer success team is make sure customers are successful. Why is that important? Well, net retention is an important metric for SaaS companies. Why is that important? Because growth is really important for SaaS company, and you can do wise beyond that, right? And I think asking the wise allows you to level up your uh, aperture of what you're looking at. Now, then from there, you have to go say, okay, I've got to learn, okay, how, what are the other things we can do for net retention? And in our case, we had to learn like what do product teams want in terms of driving product-led growth and product analytics. And that's a whole new market. We had to learn all about it, right? And then obviously buy and build technology to make that happen. And then I think probably one of the hardest challenges, which we're still in the middle of, is then you're talking about uh, changing the way the market thinks about you. And this is harder, the bigger you are, 
yep. right? So it's like, okay, Gainsight, customer success, great, awesome. But we're not just customer success anymore, right? We have community and product-led growth. And so we're gonna be launching some new messaging uh, in the next few months. That's all about like this bigger growth story that Gainsight can enable. And I think every vendor goes through this challenge, which is you start punching above your weight, but people don't realize it. And they don't, and you have to kind of think about how you reposition without losing what you got, what got you there. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So the the kind of changing the messaging or kind of framing that I think is especially interesting because that's a um that's also a, that's a sign of success clearly, right? With, with expansion of the business. Somebody put this to me really well, which was kind of when Facebook changed their name to Meta. It was it was kind of the thought exercise at the most extreme kind of level you could think, which is what happens when the company solves its mission. Yeah, yeah. And there's no more people to connect on the earth, or you know, you have multiple, you know, billions and millions of users, et cetera. What happens when the company when all, when all, when all the democracies have been destroyed in the world? Now it's like, okay, what do we do now? No, just kidding. <laughs> but, but but seriously, you're right. When you achieve your mission, or not achieve it because it's never over, but when you like feel like okay, we have a, a we have we have momentum in this thing that we we set out to do. You right? have to find a new mission. You have to find a bigger story that it kind of oh. sits into, right? And so, so that it it becomes a it becomes an interesting opportunity. It's an interesting challenge as well. That's why I wanted to unpack that that kind of nuance because I think if you actually have the mindset of focusing on let's say net revenue retention or an adjacent metric or so, that's a business problem that's hooked into you know having a good product, telling it the right way with marketing, closing it with sales, yeah. um, building it with engineering. It continues, it's, it's truly wired through the entire business as opposed, to being a, as opposed to being a functional solution. That's right. And I think that's, to me, that's the biggest takeaway I've had is like, you, you always want to have like a really big vision and remit and then yeah. be able to execute in a, in a very focused way. But yeah. then know when you need to make that next move up. Like, like, and, and do it, don't do it too late. Like that's, if you said one of the mistakes against sides, we just did some of this stuff too late, which is why we slowed down. And yeah. if we had been doing some of those things earlier, we would have been able to just keep going. So that's one mistake, you know, I definitely would have done differently. You, you wrote it. I want to switch a little bit of gears. You wrote a post recently, which I thought was really interesting. I wanted to unpack it. Um, it has a lot to do with kind of what's going on in the market right now, certainly yeah. from a raising perspective. Um, and then, you know, you got, you guys have some, in some sense experienced this and raising a lot of money too. So the post was on, you know, it was about companies that have raised monster rounds ahead of traction, right? right? And we're having this discussion kind of late January, 2022, public markets are correcting. It's obviously going to have a, an impact on private multiples, you know, three to six months down the line, right? And you're already seeing little bits of frays and, and, and cracks in kind of the venture ecosystem of, you know, rounds are getting repriced, you know, term sheets in some cases are getting pulled you know, et cetera. And so there's a, there's a whole kind of recalibration going on. And I think that's why your, your post was, was really timely. Um, a, you know, a lot of companies have raised really big rounds and then kind of this moment in time starts to happen. So we, 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 even this conversation talked a lot about kind of the dynamics of, you know, what happens when you raise money, but maybe you can just set the arc or the stage of, you know, if I'm a founder that's raised kind of well ahead of traction and I'm raised, you know, a really, really large round, you know, how am I to think about it? You're, and, and I asked this question because your advice specifically was interesting to me, which is most people say, don't raise a big round while I had attraction. It's a recipe for a down round and a recipe for a disaster. Your advice was more nuanced than that. So maybe you can, you can unpack kind of what, what your advice and how you think about this. Yeah, it's interesting because it's funny. I wrote this article last year, actually. Um, okay. before the market came down and now okay. it's just become very, very timely 
because yeah. the market came down and it it ties to this whole story where we slowed down and then you know even outside of a, if you put aside the market multiples changing when yeah. you slow down your multiple drops and totally. by the way what is hard to imagine until you experience it is that when you slow down a little bit your multiple drops a lot if you're starting it as i've seen some companies 200 times ar 400 times ar you're there's nowhere to go but down right and so the challenge is that like your business is going to grow but your multiple is going to drop and it's and, and and the question is which of those is a faster um force and 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 if it turns out the multiple is dropping faster your business is growing your company's getting less valuable somebody had a tweet um yesterday or two days ago which i thought was like it was, it was very sobering they said you think that like no matter where you are, your business always gets more valuable. He said he joined Dropbox uh, as yeah. seven years ago and it was and worth nine and a half million dollars. Yeah. And now it's worth nine and a half billion dollars, like the same amount, right? And so one of the things, the things I recommended in there were um, number one, being really clear eyed about what's happening with growth and really looking at that net, net new logo land. And if that's slowing down, be hyper aware because that business, that means your business is going to slow down mathematically in the next couple of years. ARR yeah. growth, is, is the kind of lagging indicator. The leading indicator is like new bookings growth. So that was one thing that we said was just watch out for the new bookings growth slowing down. If it does, make sure you've got those new growth engines going. So you've got yeah. some other ways so that maybe you can hedge that and at least have other things going. But if all that happens, then yeah. you got to slow your spending down because the worst possible thing is to get stuck in a squeeze. You yeah. raised at a billion dollar valuation, you're 10 million of ARR. You grow, you know, you're supposed to grow 10 to 30. You go 10 to 17, that's like not bad. I mean, that's like in a real world, that's not bad. That's 10 to 17, your company's worth like $300 million after the market correction, 200 million or whatever. Oh, and right. so now you can't raise money unless it's a massive down round. Yeah. Don't run out of money. Yeah. So yeah. slow down your burn. That's it. Like, like be really, so what I would be really watch out for is you start missing even quarter number one, slow yeah. down your burn. And, and I think uh, we're actually at a really important point because a lot of the companies the last year I know raise money based on crazy um, yep. uh, projections, yep. right? They they like they were super aggressive on projections because they want to get that big number. And so companies right now are, are starting to miss numbers. Yep. And so people, some people listening to this, I, I I don't envy your situation. I've been in it, but yep. if you're in that situation, you get a control on spending. And then I talked about a lot about culture. Like culture is going to be so important because next couple of years it's going to be hard because your employees are going to be sitting at this looking at valuation super high, four nine eight price is too high, my options are underwater. Is the company the right place? Yep. They're going to be looking at you. So it's going to be challenging, but you know what? Like you can get through it. That would be my, my end end result of this. Totally. You, uh, I want to round out the, yeah. the discussion on, on, um, on something you said at the end of that post, because it was so simple, but I thought it was so apt. You mentioned it a little bit earlier in the discussion, but you said in the post, you said to win the Super Bowl, you have to stay in the game. Yes. Um, and that that's, I think, the core of what you're saying, right? Basically right now, which is effectively you know, your kind of lived experience with GameSite was, you know, we did kind of come out of the gates like a rocket ship, we hit a wall, but, you know, and then we, you know, we've accelerated growth and kind of the story has been great, but it, it wasn't this kind of just up into the right with no adversity story, but the key piece of why you guys were able to be kind of on this other side, abstracting all the kind of specifics aside is you stayed in the game. That's it. I'm still here. That's it. I'm still here. <laughs> I'm very proud that I'm still here. I'm very lucky, you know, uh, you don't get to do this often in, in a career. And I think that's, if I close out to me, uh, you know, I just uh, reread uh, Grit, you know, Angela Duckworth, that book that yeah. I'm sure many people have read. 
it is the whole thing. That's it. It's just like, if you don't have grit, please don't do category creation. Oh my God, it'd be terrible for you. But grit, you know, she defines it as like passion and perseverance. And honestly, I'm the kind of person who like gets really excited about what I do. And I just don't want to give up. And I think if that is you, then don't give up. That's, that's the, the, the bottom line. Yeah. Nick, this is awesome. Uh, a ton of, a ton of interesting insights, certainly on the category creation side, but just the, just the story I think, which is, which is so kind of refreshing to hear, which is yes, a successful company that's hit scale, et cetera, but you know, not just this up into the right journey. Right. And how do you, how do you kind of temper and how do you think through these different pivotal, you know, strategic in, inflection points and, and moments throughout that journey? So it was a, it was a ton of fun to have you on, you know, thank I, I feel better too. I feel like I just talked to my therapist for the last hour. This is great. <laughs> Thanks for letting me unpack all this. So thank you. Awesome. Tell me more thank about your childhood. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, Nick. Awesome. Great to see you. Thanks so much. Bye.